And good afternoon to you. It's Sterling Fox in for Jill Bennett on this Friday, heading to the weekend. And, uh, well, a little cloudy right now. Not raining. We'll take not raining every time. 12.07, big show lined up for you today. Lots of interesting guests, a wide variety of subjects. But we begin on a Friday afternoon on a kind of a sporty note by welcoming Rob Williams aboard. Rob is the sports editor at Vancouver's Daily Hive. And his uh, big story today is the NBA and announces 16 players have tested positive for coronavirus. Rob, welcome. Good afternoon. Hey, Sterling. How are you? Well, I'm fine, thanks. I think I'm over the uh, Vancouver not being a hub city uh, for the NHL uh, playoffs this year. Are you? Have you recovered yet? Oh, yeah. It's been, it's, you know what? It, it's been, I've had a love-hate relationship with uh, the NHL hub city story. It's uh, been seemingly all we've been talking about for the better part of two months. Yep. And I think at times it was something interesting and relevant to talk about uh, where there was not much other sports news happening. Uh, but I think everyone's got a bit of uh, NHL hub city fatigue, uh, you know, finally finding out uh, on Friday that Vancouver is out of the running mm. or on Thursday that Vancouver is out of the running. Yeah. And I think I'm, I'm feeling, re- I'm hearing relief more actually than any other uh, reaction, sort of universal as well as, as people, uh, you just bump into people and, oh, you heard, eh? we're not going to get the hockey. Well, so what? And who needs all those germy tourists anyway? It's, it's, a, it's a reaction I'm hearing more often than not. Yeah, I, mean, I, I must say, like, the, the reaction I've seen on, on uh, social media and, you know, the people that follow me on, on Twitter are mostly hockey fans. Uh, and the, the, the reaction was either... Like okay, so be it, or or commending, um, you know, Dr. Bonnie Henry for for not backing down and and uh, you know and, and making things uh, less safe than they than they ought to be. So um, I think that's it, because it was that reason. It wasn't uh, it wasn't that there weren't the right amenities in yeah. town or or anything like that. It it, it seems like it, um, you know, according to to most reports, it, it appears that. Uh, the big hang-up was was what would happen uh, to games to players uh, if there was a positive case within the bubble, and and I guess BC's answer was a little too strict for the NHL's liking, and and they're going to look elsewhere. That's right, but you know, here's your story today. I have it up in front of me. NBA announces 16 players testing positive for coronavirus, and this is a part of now. There are they in training camps already? Are they that? organized in terms of resuming their season so all the teams are together now no no not not exactly the the teams have now um are now congregating back into their home hometowns yeah with the with the exception of the toronto raptors because of the the 14-day quarantine they're just setting up shop in in uh, florida i guess they figured there's no point in coming all the way into canada with so many players in the United States and then going back to the United States uh, right after. Sure. Um, so they're going to be playing their games in Disney World uh, at the ESPN complex. They're, uh, they're, so they're going to start arriving to Disney World July 7th to 9th. So uh, that's, what, that's the reason for, for the widespread testing of players, giving that two-week buffer. Uh, so they tested 302 players. Uh, so, so that's about 5% of players that they tested, um, tested positive. So that's similar to what the NHL uh the NHL's results from last week. Sure. Um, but yeah, the players, players are, it's, it's individual workouts. It's not, it's not um, like a training camp environment. There's no like, you know, players are not posting up against each other or anything like that. So uh, I suspect that, that these, um, 
positive tests are linked to, you know, contracting it in the community uh, with obviously, you know, uh, you know, cases on the rise in the United States. And the rigorous testing regime, as you point out, Rob, is probably happening at this pace because they need the two-week window for anyone testing positive to quarantine and still be ready for when those training camp begins in each of the team's hometown before they head to Florida, right? That's right. I mean, they want to make sure that anyone entering this, you know, bubble environment, NBA's calling it a campus environment, um, Anyone entering that environment, they want to ensure that, that, that the players and staff and everyone that enters there is, is healthy to begin with. And, and then it's a matter of uh, making sure that, that the virus doesn't get past, uh, doesn't get into that bubble. And, and you know, there's, there still is risk because the, by all accounts, the, it, the, um, all the, the cleaning staff at the hotels and the, the people making the meals – uh, you know, those people are going to be going back home to their homes in, in Orlando and the surrounding areas. Sure. Um, and they're going to be going to grocery stores and, and who knows where else. So uh, there's still going to be a risk. And, and uh, that's what the NBA and the NHL, for that matter, as well, will have to be uh, very concerned about. Now, in your story today, you say names of the players, the NBA players who tested positive were not revealed. Uh, in the NHL's case, a couple of days ago, when we learned about Austin Matthews, for example, and other players have been named. Uh, so it's is it a league decision or a team decision uh, is, as to who gets named? and all, Or is that just kind of leaking information more than anything else, Rob? Yeah, there hasn't really been uh, teams and leagues are generally not uh, releasing the names sure. of players. Uh, there have been reports, um, and there's been some reports of NBA players that have uh, that have tested positive this week. Uh, Nikola Jokic of the Denver Nuggets is a fairly big name that uh, that reportedly tested positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Austin Matthews, it was a big it was a big story. Uh, Last week, it was. he was, he it was reported, and then some outlets, you know, viewed that as something that, uh, well, should we report it or should we not report it? If is it is it a private health concern or is it, uh, you know, just obviously the health of, of athletes? We we generally report. So so an interesting uh, question there for for journalists to to mull around. But that's um, right. But yeah, otherwise they're they're not they're generally not naming players uh, at this point. That's the policy. Interesting. We're looking at some of the numbers today from uh, some outbreaks or uh, spikes, upticks in cases in places like Texas and Arizona. And we're seeing Florida also on that short list of red hot spots. And yet we know, Rob, that both the NBA and if I'm not mistaken, Major League Soccer have huge tournaments coming up in Florida in the next month or so. Uh, Is is the uptick in cases uh, a, a potential impediment to both leagues? You'd have to think so. Absolutely, yeah. Um, the Vancouver Whitecaps are going to be heading there uh, in the next few days as well um, because uh, MLS is is also at this uh, ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex, which is within the Disney World grounds. Um, yeah, I mean, I, apparently Orlando has not been the hardest hit of Florida. But, right. But, but it's, it's certainly not like um, walking around the streets of Vancouver right now. Um, you know, there's there's uh, definitely a risk, and I, I think that you know, false positive tests could could um, you know run an issue for for these leagues uh, in terms of getting healthy players into that environment. And like I said before, uh, you know, 
there's going to be staff that are working in in these environments. Um, you know, they're they're going to be taking every precaution that they can. Um, so so you know, ho- hopefully they can keep the virus out. But uh, but it, you know, it's not 100% foolproof here. So um, they're they're going to be testing continuously. Uh, all the leagues will be uh, to to try to keep a, a, a handle on this because. Um, you know, there's not. You can't really do full physical distancing in a team in a, in a professional sports team environment. And to so. say the very least, Rob, there's an awful lot of money riding on this. Uh, it's twelve nineteen on this Friday afternoon. Cloudy skies and well, a little cooler today than before. Maybe some rain tomorrow, and then back to the good stuff by Sunday. The official weather word. Rob Williams is with us from the Daily Hive. Wanted to talk Major League Baseball with you, but first, Rob, uh, the big deal for hockey fans, uh, aside from uh, finding out which the two hub cities will be, and it looks like that'll be sometime next week now. Uh, The big deal for hockey fans tonight is the NHL draft lottery, and apparently, I'm told, had a discussion about this last night, and I'm told that Ottawa could potentially end up with picks numbers 1, 2, and 3. It's remote, but it is possible, uh, and if they'll find a way to make a mess of that, the Senators, you can bet some money on that part. What do you see tonight happening with the NHL draft lottery. Yeah, I mean, I think the the most interesting thing uh, about the draft lottery and, and the big thing is is having the the Ottawa. You're right. The Ottawa Senators could win all three yes. top spots, but we won't know if they've won all three tonight. So it's it's a bit of a convoluted um, plan because, of course, we don't know all the teams that have missed the playoffs yet. So what they're doing is. They're starting with the seven teams that are not going to be restarting the season. Right, so exactly. Four teams restarting. Seven teams are they're they're just, they're just out. Of it, out. So they're, yep. they're not bothering. So they're restarting. automatically in tonight. Then, Rob, the seven so teams that won't make it. That's right. So okay. they're in the draft lottery. Uh, Detroit has the finished last, so they have the highest percentage. But Ottawa holds two picks. They hold their own pick with 13.5% chance of winning. They also hold San Jose's pick, which has 11.5%. So that, so add that up. They've got a 25% chance of, of winning today, but then there are going to be placeholder teams. And that, that, this is where it gets a little bit confusing and a, a way more, definitely way more complicated. There's eight placeholder spots and those will be awarded to teams that, that, uh, lose their qualifying round. So if you're still with me, it, it, it's conceivable that the uh, a placeholder team could win the draft lottery uh, tonight, and we won't know which team that is, and then they'll hold a second draft lottery to decide who gets that pick. So, that, so the Canucks could conceivably – you won't see the Canucks card popped up uh, today, but they could conceivably still win the draft lottery if they lose their playing game to Minnesota. Ah. I hope I haven't lost all of your listeners already, but it's a little bit complicated for sure. Well, it is absolutely incredibly complicated. There's no question about it, but it will be fun to watch. And the placeholder teams, uh, uh, more than a few people, it'll be a Friday night, more than a few people have had a cocktail, and most will be totally confused by the time it's over, but it'll be fun to watch anyway. And speaking of total confusion, my friend, how about those pros in Major League Baseball? Have have they, in fact, resolved their issues? Will there be a 60-game season, Rob, or not? And even if they have said yes on both sides of that equation, what's your wager on a baseball season actually happening? 
Yeah, so they, you know, after weeks of contentious negotiation, uh, where they seemingly couldn't agree on on, on much anything. of anything, that's right. They eventually uh, they've decided they're they're going to play a sixty game uh, regular season. So that's the it's going to be the shortest MLB regular season in over a hundred years, uh, because of course they're they're used to playing uh, one hundred sixty two games. That's right. Uh, so that's going to, they're going to start training camps on July 1st and their season is likely to begin around July 24th. Um, and now the, the key difference with, with major league baseball compared to the other leagues that are going to be starting around the same time, like the NHL, NBA and MLS is that they're not going to be in a bubble environment because of course they're just starting their regular season. So to keep players in a bubble for the full season, I guess they seemed a little bit, uh, a little bit too much. So they're going to be pl- playing games in home ballparks flying around to, to different cities. Um, they're going to try to limit the amount of travel by just playing teams within their own regions. Right. Uh, so you're going to see American League and National League teams playing each other. So you're going to see, like, the New York Mets will play the New York Yankees. Yes, instance, yeah, yeah. Uh, this year, which is they generally don't play very often. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's going to be what they're going to be doing in Major League Baseball. And I think that the chance of, a, of an outbreak within teams is, is significantly higher because yeah. – Players are going to be going back to their homes, and and um, you know, could and there's teams, of course, all over the United States, states right now, with with high cases in in the number of regions where these players live. So, yeah, I, I think it's a, a a much bigger risk of of things going sideways in MLB. So you wouldn't put a whole lot of the Williams family fortune on a major league baseball season <laughs> happening. Let's assume for a second you're wrong and you lose uh, six bucks. Uh, and the Blue Jays are playing, in fact. They're not going to play in Toronto, are they, because of that cross-border 14-day quarantine thing? So where in America will the Blue Jays base themselves? Yeah, so the, the Blue Jays uh, have apparently they've reached out to, to see if they can be allowed uh, to have an exception to play games uh, in Toronto, I, I see that as being highly unlikely you bet, uh, because, yeah. of, because, of course, they'd be coming in and out of, of Canada. And it's not just them that would be doing this. It would be uh, the teams that they're playing as well would be coming in and out. So uh, that to me, you know, without some kind of a bubble environment like the like uh, the Canadian government has proved for uh, for hockey returning, uh, it's quite a quite a different um, scenario for the Blue Jays. So I, I see the Blue Jays uh, re- Restarting the season, it sounds like they're leaning towards playing at their spring training facility, which is in Dunedin, Florida. Right. Uh, which is, again, another whole issue. That's right. Seems, seems a little bit uh, counterintuitive to leave Canada, which is, um, you know, dealing with the virus uh, much better than the United States, and then go to Florida, of all places, which has seen a huge surge in cases down there. So, yep. uh, yeah, the, the Blue Jays are in a, a bit of a tricky spot uh Needless to say. They have a franchise, a triple A um, AAA franchise in Buffalo, which is driving distance from Toronto for openers. It's also physically closer to Toronto. Uh, and yet it's in the States. It would take away the cross-border quarantine issues. Uh, and yet they're still looking down in Florida. That's that's kind of surprising. Now, back to soccer, if you don't mind bouncing around with me for a couple more seconds, sure, yeah. Rob. Because of all the leagues that have organized some kind of restart, the Major League Soccer people seem to have have it most together in terms of organization and logistics and all the rest of it. So of all of the sports that are still pending, is soccer, in your opinion, the one most likely to launch a successful season? 
Yeah, I mean, I would put it in the same realm as, as the NBA and, and the NHL. I, I think um, the NBA has the advantage of having fewer players um, on their team. Sure. Uh, so, so I think that's an advantage that, that the NBA will see. Uh, yeah, no, I, 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 I see MLS, NBA, NHL kind of in the same, kind of in the same boat right now. Um, I, I, I probably would put the NHL at having the best chance of a successful restart, uh, you know, pending which cities they choose for, uh, for their restart. I think but the look, NHL, frankly, is, is a little bit crazy not to be going to uh, Vancouver and Edmonton. Sterling Fox in for Jill Bennett on a Friday afternoon, 1236. A couple of news stories today for the legal file. One a decision by the Supreme Court of Canada affecting Uber drivers right across Canada. And here in BC, a decision by our government to extend temporary layoff provisions uh, to a maximum of 24 weeks after concerns were raised by business groups and the opposition. Here to discuss all of this and perhaps add a little clarity to the conversation is Lior Semfiru. He is a partner at Samfiru to Markin LLP, the employment lawyers, and most importantly to CKNW listeners, he is the star of the Employment Show on Saturday afternoons. Liar, we've never talked on the radio before. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Sterling. Great to be with you. It's good to have you with us. Let's deal with the local story first, and then we'll go to the Supreme Court in a few minutes. The government has uh, matched up the extending uh, temporary layoffs provisions to line up with the uh, CERB program, uh, now extending it to 24 weeks. In a nutshell, Lior, explain what this, what these provisions allowed both employers and employees to do. Essentially, the the idea behind this is to allow employers a longer period of time before they have to make a decision as to whether or not they're able to bring employees back to work. So the idea that the employers now can lay off or temporarily lay off employees for up to 24 weeks, previously it was 13 weeks, then extended to 16, now 24 weeks, and after that 24-week period, the employer would either have to pay severance out to those employees that they're not bringing back, mm-hmm. or if they're bringing back to work, then there's no issue. The, the reality, though, is, Sterling, is that all this really does is it gives the employer the ability to ask for the employee's consent for such an extension. So an employee that does not consent to that extension can still treat their employment as being terminated much sooner and require their employer to pay them severance. So while there's an intention to try to help employers, I actually don't think this does much at all. Interesting. So the severance, of course, has nothing to do with the time, whether it was uh, 10 weeks or 16 or now 24 weeks, Lior. Uh, The severance will go back to the time at which you were laid off or furloughed from your employment. They're not adding these these extra weeks don't count in terms of qualification for more severance, do they? They do not count as qualifications, although you certainly are continued to be considered an employee while you're on a layoff or a furlough. Right. But at the end of the day, an employee can choose to treat their employment as being terminated, but now the employer can ask them to to stay on for longer, whereas previously they couldn't do that. But for those employees to say, well, I need need compensation. I can't afford just to live off EI or CRB. I need my severance. 
those employees could still pursue that if they so choose. Well, I'm quoting now from Global News. Business groups have warned of widespread bankruptcies if businesses were forced to pay out severance for staff they intended on bringing back to work as the economy reopens. So it could have really damaged uh, what minimal cash flow remains in some businesses. Well, one of the concerns that I have in terms of businesses is oftentimes employees certainly want to go back to work. And I've spoken with many employees that said, fine, I'll wait the 16 weeks and I'll go back to work. But now that it's 24 weeks, well, now it's too much for me. Now I'm going to have to pursue severance because I, too, have financial obligations. So, So it actually could have the opposite effect by pushing employees that otherwise were going to wait for their employer to pursue severance only because they can't afford to be off work this long. So I I do have some concerns about this measure and the effectiveness of it. And again, just for clarification purposes, Lior, if you uh, have been furloughed or laid off, you still, are you still eligible to receive the CERB benefit in the interim? Yes. So if you've been uh, put on a layoff or a furlough because of COVID-19, as long as you're not earning more than a thousand dollars a month, you can qualify for the CRB. Who has now, uh, which has now been extended uh, by, uh, by another eight weeks. So, yes, many, in fact, most individuals that have been furloughed are currently receiving that CRB benefit. Okay. Want to just quickly change gears. You don't have all the time in the world. Big decision from the Supreme Court of Canada this morning, Lior, affecting Uber drivers. Uh, Uber, is it, its international headquarters is in the Netherlands. And if a Canadian Uber person or employee wanted to lodge a complaint of some description with Uber, they had to go to the Netherlands or at least send the paperwork to the Netherlands, a cost of several thousand dollars. Uh, and uh, uh, some c- Canadian employees went, now just a second, help. Uh, we need to to have something a little more local and an eight to one decision the supreme court of canada said you sure do absolutely and the idea being that you don't actually have any rights if you don't have a mechanism to enforce those rights and what the court found is that uber drivers don't have the ability to force any of their rights if they have to go to the netherlands they would actually physically have to go to the netherlands at a cost of about twenty thousand dollars canadian before we even factor in travel expenses or legal expenses which means if Uber doesn't pay you for your, your shift last night, well, too bad. There's not much you can do about it. So I think the Supreme Court of Canada has sent a message both to Uber as well as companies in general is that, no, you cannot take workers' rights by, in, by putting in measures that prevent them from enforcing those rights. So that is a very welcome decision for workers across the country. Well, especially for companies, too, uh, uh, for workers of companies who have decided to, for whatever reason, move their uh, their, their control operations offshore uh, and uh, try to dodge uh, and hide behind that uh, remote location in terms of satisfying the issues of their Canadian employees. That's, uh, that's strictly gone. Certainly, if you're going to be working and employing Canadian workers, you have to abide by Canadian laws. You have to give workers the access to the Canadian legal system, which is, by the way, quite good. And employment laws are very uh, comprehensive and, and effective across the country. You can't avoid that by saying, look, you signed on the piece of paper saying you'll, you'll go to the Netherlands or whatever the country is. That's unfair. That's unreasonable. And I think any other result would have potentially been devastating to employment laws. All right. Thanks for this, Leo. We appreciate the clarification and the, the time it took to do so. Great to talk to you today. My pleasure, Sterling. Thank-
It's Sterling for Jill on a Friday afternoon. I was being a little sarcastic in tone talking about the new move by the government under the Attorney General David Eby to allow electronic wills. The only reason of the sarcasm is because of our court system. We have learned as a result of COVID-19 how incredibly inadequate and archaic the Canadian legal, especially the Canadian court system is. It applies in Nova Scotia as equally as it applies in British Columbia. In terms of the internet and online activities, Activity. Prior to COVID-19, our courts were practically barely in the picture. Because of COVID-19, however, there have been a number of changes that have been forced upon us. And in the case of our court system, uh, it's about blinking time. And today, the changes by the Attorney General are basically legislation coming up that will allow courts to accept wills that are signed electronically and witnessed remotely. Here to talk about this is the CEO of a company called Willful. Aaron Burry is with us this afternoon. Hello, Aaron. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. Tell us about Willful first, and then we'll get you to comment on the legislation proposal here out of Victoria. You got it. Yeah. I mean, we're, I was smiling as you were giving your intro because I was one of those consumers who was frustrated by the lack of online options. And uh, when one of our family members passed away and, and hadn't done a lot of planning, it made my husband and I realize that, you know, there's a lot of this stuff that we do online and other aspects of our life, but we're still planning for our death the same way we were 30 years ago. So Willful brings that process online, allowing you to create a will and power of attorney documents from home for a much more affordable price than visiting a lawyer. Uh, And to your point, unfortunately, the whole process isn't digital because by law, you still have to print the document that we provide for you, uh, have it signed offline. There's still an offline component, but we try to make it as easy as possible. Well, and I would assume in the process, you're also, as you alluded to earlier, uh, you're also making it considerably more affordable for some people too, right? For sure. I mean, we absolutely advocate getting these documents done, regardless of whether you visit a lawyer or you use a solution like ours. But you are looking at, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to visit a lawyer versus our site, which is about $99 up to $249 for these documents. Now, as a result of the pandemic, uh, BC has been allowing remote witnessing under an emergency order. The proposed legislation would make this provision permanent, permanent. In other words, and we've alluded to this a lot. COVID-19 is the mother, uh, is necessity being the mother of invention and a lot of inventions, a lot of overdue catch-up stuff going on. And this is all part of that. But nonetheless, the COVID really has accelerated the process because uh, prior to COVID, you actually had to have an attorney. For example, if you were uh, doing your will through a law firm, you would have to have your attorney visit you in the hospital in order to get your signature, especially if you had revised the will in any way. Uh, there would have to be a hospital visit and and a, a compliance and a, a signing off. Uh, and, and of course, with COVID, that simply was not on. They had to revise that out of necessity. So what did they do? Yeah, it's a great uh, question. So to your point, you you really do have to have a person in front of you when finalizing your will in BC. BC is one of the only provinces that doesn't allow what are called holograph wills, which are essentially a will that you write on a piece of paper with a pen. So people in BC had to meet up with two people to get their will witnessed, which was obviously, as you said, impossible for anyone who was isolating or quarantining or who had COVID. So mm-hmm. the AG saw this 
implemented virtual witnessing to give people a way to use the tech tools at our disposal, like Zoom, to be able to get this done without being in person. But the concern has been, well, what happens when the emergency order lifts? Are we just going to go back to the way it was before? Because I think to your point in your intro, this has really shown that Canadians need and want digital solutions. And we can buy a house online and do a whole host of other things. But the, the will creation process is very much still an offline process. Yeah, it is indeed. Now, what is the difference, though? You talked about British Columbia being one of a very small group that requires this physical witnessing. So what in other provinces that don't have this provision anymore, uh, what did they do differently, Erin? So BC is one of the only ones that doesn't allow for holograph wills, which are handwritten wills that actually don't require any witnesses. They okay. just require you to write it on a piece of paper. So every province in Canada does require, unless you're handwriting it, that you have to write, you know, you create the will and you have two witnesses in front of you. BC actually was one of only two provinces that allowed for virtual witnessing to happen over video conference. Ontario was the only other province that implemented that. Anywhere else in Canada, COVID or no COVID, you still had to get your will witnessed in person by two people unless you were just creating a handwritten will. So actually, BC is ahead of the curve compared to a lot of other provinces. Interesting stuff. I'm I'm looking at your website at Willful, uh, and uh, you say our mission is to use technology to provide simplified end-of-life planning. Willful makes getting your affairs in order affordable, convenient, and easy. How long have you been in business, and how's biz? Well, we've been around since late 2017, and we've created about 30,000 documents for Canadians since then. Uh, And business, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, good for business, bad for the general fear and anxiety in society. COVID definitely made people think about emergency planning. I mean, nobody likes to think about their own mortality. So it's typically something that falls to the bottom of your to-do list. But we definitely saw people kind of sit up and make this a priority. So we saw a big jump in traffic to our site. And keep in mind, we also saw a lot of traffic from senior citizens and folks that maybe would have gone into a lawyer previously, but they just weren't able to because of COVID. So it was really interesting to see people who traditionally may not have been digital people move to online tools because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And however slowly the Canadian legal and especially court system is is gradually being pushed along too. Erin, thanks very much for joining us this afternoon. Continued success at Willful. Thank you, Sterling. Have a great day. Nice to have you with us this Friday afternoon. Sterling Fox in for Jill Bennett. A new report just out today shows that 88% of us British Columbians support making leveled up pay for long-term care workers permanent after the pandemic. Assuming, of course, there will be, there will, I'm being a little, a little uh, sarcastic again, there will eventually be an after the pandemic. One keeps one's fingers crossed constantly. The poll was conducted by the Angus Reid organization and commissioned by Community Savings Credit Union. The CEO of that outfit is Mike Schilling, and he's on the line right now. Mike, thanks for joining us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Tell us more about the report. Why did you commission it in the first place? Yeah, well, we we saw something pretty fantastic happening with millions of us at 7 7 p.m. going out to clap and cheer our healthcare workers, those heroes who are keeping us safe. And we, we thought, hey, there's something going on here. We wanted to sort of test the public mood. So we did. Uh, we believed the British Columbians wanted to do more 
than just clap and cheer. Yeah. We believe the British Columbians would support these workers having fair and equal pay. And, and that's that's what the report has shown. Interesting stuff. Now, this is for long term care workers, correct, Mike? Yes, um, our, our poll focused on people who work in long-term care, and that's obviously been an area that's been really hard hit by this pandemic. Um, these are people who are really on the front line. But actually, some of the lowest paid workers in our hospital area, people such as uh, uh, housekeeping who keep our hospitals clean, that's really important, people who feed our sick. Um, so it goes a bit more broad, broadly than that. But um, really what we've seen is British Columbians believe that these people who've supported us when we needed it, should be respected, should get decent pay all the time. Yeah, we had two nursing professors on the program yesterday afternoon, Mike, on on various nursing issues, and both of them uh, underlined the fact that, of course, separating the nursing profession into various areas of activity, and long-term care has its own category, and it is the least well-supported, it is the most understaffed, and up until the pandemic, at least, it was always also the poorest paying. The pandemic has indeed leveled the playing field, and I would think, if anything else, elevated the our esteem of the people in long-term care. Do you think that that will continue post-pandemic as well, Mike? Well, it, it should, shouldn't it? And I think we all feel this very personally. Um, and what our research shows is that there's overwhelming support amongst British Columbians. British Columbians are pretty generous and fair people. Mm. And we, we, we don't want to forget these people. As we move through, as you just said, we're, we're hoping to move beyond COVID-19. But as we do so, let's not forget those people who were, who were there for us when at the worst moment. And frankly, who were there for us should it happen again. Mm-hmm. So all of this is now boiling down into something you at uh, the, the branch have, have called the 701 movement. We know about 7 o'clock, that's the pots and pans moment. And you know what? It's still kind of re- refreshing, Mike, to, to walk through any neighborhood in Metro Vancouver at 7 o'clock on any given night and you still hear a racket. And it's quite a while since that began, isn't it? Well, it's wonderful, isn't it? And, it uh, is. And... and and, you know, no one was told to do that. We all came out and did it. It's spontaneous. It's meaningful. Um, and absolutely, you know, I, I'm the same as you, I think, as same as your listeners. We all love to hear that noise. But, you know, what we're, what we're putting to British Columbians is what happens at 7.01? When the, when the clapping and the cheering stops, are we really going to show our support and our respect for these workers and maybe do something to make sure they get fair pay? Uh, and fair benefits and they're kept safe so that's what 701 is about let's do something more than just clap yeah and you've got a website to dedicate it specifically specifically to this it's 701 the numbers 701 movement.org and if you go to the website it says right up front and center join the movement to create a level playing field for long-term care workers that as i mentioned moments ago or suggested is uh, has has already happened to a very large degree out of necessity because of the pandemic. And one of the big problems up front was the fact that, again, due to, in many cases, uh, lower pay issues, uh, a lot of uh, long-term care workers, Mike, were compelled to work at more than one facility just to cobble together enough income to, you know, be able to pay the bills. And that became a high-risk aspect of their work that has since been rectified. But even that took a while to sort out. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is this is more about more than just about decent pay and, and fairness. You know, we believe that people should one job should be enough. Right. And uh, this was posing a public health risk to us all, actually. So it's in everyone's interest that people are uh, people who work in uh, long term care facilities are paid, uh, paid a decent wage 
um, you know, given decent benefits and they should just, one job should be enough for, for people who look after us in this way. So, you know, it couldn't be easier. Go on, as you said, thanks very much for highlighting the, the website. Go on 701movement.org and put your name down there and show some real support for, for these absolute critical workers. All right, I'm on the site right now and there you go. So, so right now, 70 have signed. Let's get to 1,000. So clearly this is brand new. How new, Mike? Yeah, we launched this yesterday. So, you know, thanks so much for for getting this news out to your listeners. We launched this yesterday. Um, We think there's going to be overwhelming support amongst British Columbians. Um, We're going to go way beyond a thousand here. Um, Frankly, millions of us came out and and clapped and cheered at 7 7 p.m. So, you know, millions of us should be signing this petition. And to whom will the petition be submitted upon completion? Well, this is uh, this is something we've been working uh, in partnership with the Hospital Employees Union, who look after. Uh, they represent a lot of these workers, and they they work for them every day to keep them safe and make sure that they they get decent benefits. So we're working very closely with them. We're going to be working with uh, our provincial politicians, our leadership, um, who frankly actually have done a great job in getting us and and worked with us to get us through this pandemic. Um, we think there's going to be overwhelming support amongst employers, amongst uh, the, our, our politicians. Uh, and obviously amongst our workers for, for this campaign. We, we we don't see many people arguing against this. I think it's a pretty pretty tough call. I think it's a slam dunk. Uh, 701, the number 701movement.org. And uh, you can jump on that, have a look around, see what they're up to. And if you're on side, sign the petition. Mike Schilling, thanks for this. Appreciate your time this afternoon. Thanks so much.